I really enjoyed that story that we just heard from Melissa about this bond between the Choctaw and the Irish. I think it really says a lot about the surprising connections that can come out during tough times and the incredible spirit of generosity that can result. Now, I want to share another story, but this one's pretty different. It's still a story about a community going out of its way to give to another group in a time of hardship, but there are big differences in how the folks on the receiving end accepted that generosity. And this time, instead of spanning the Atlantic, we're going to stay in one city, Philadelphia. This story takes place in 1793, when Philadelphia was the capital of a brand new United States. And at the time, one of the city's biggest religious leaders was a man named Bishop Richard Allen. He's a church builder, a civil rights leader, and a uh, really important activist for civil rights in the early republic. Rich Newman is going to help us tell this story. He wrote a biography about Richard Allen called Freedom's Prophet. Now, Rich says 1793 was a really important year for Allen. He had recently led a big walkout from the Methodist Church because he and other African Americans were fed up with segregation in the ministry. So Allen decided to build his own church. Which will eventually become Mother Bethel, the lead church in the African Methodist Church denomination. So in the early 1790s, he's trying to get uh, African American congregants to join his church. He's trying to get white and black people to donate to the church. But while Allen is out trying to build support for his new church, the city is struck with a devastating disease called yellow fever. Yellow fever, as the name would imply, is a bilious fever. So uh, folks get high temperatures, they feel nauseous and sick, uh, there's a yellowing of the skin and the eyes. And the thing that strikes you about the yellow fever is the physicality of it. It's not something that's hidden. When people are sick with it, they look sick. Uh, the city itself seems sick. So people start shutting off their homes. They close doors. They close the shutters. They don't let people in or out. They yell at people passing by, if you're sick with the yellow fever, I'll shoot you if you walk by for me. So the city is in every conceivable way sick, and people are really worried that it'll fall apart. So how big was it? How many people were affected by it? It wipes out uh, a big segment of the Philadelphia population. Philadelphia is the United States' largest city at the time. It has about 50,000 people. And historians estimate that between four and 5,000 people, maybe more, perished in this deadly epidemic. As yellow fever ravaged Philadelphia, people were scrambling to try and figure out how to treat people with the disease. That's where a physician named Benjamin Rush comes in. Benjamin Rush is one of the leading physicians in the United States at that time. He had trained in Europe. He's also a noted reformer and politician. He had signed the Declaration of Independence. And so he's one of the main civic leaders in Philadelphia when the yellow fever strikes. So Rush conjures this idea for how to help people who are infected. But it's based on a belief that turns out to be very, very wrong. Benjamin Rush believed that African Americans were immune from the yellow fever. As a medical man, he was sure in his science, and it turns out that he shouldn't have been because he was wrong. African Americans are susceptible to the yellow fever, but Benjamin Rush thought that because during the early phases of the disease and from reports elsewhere that African Americans weren't getting as infected as whites, and so therefore they were immune, and that because they were immune, this was probably 
an opportunity offered by God to let African Americans uh, enter the public stage and help white Philadelphians recover from the yellow fever. So, propelled by this faulty assumption, Rush goes to two of the most influential African American leaders in the city, Richard Allen and his friend Absalom Jones. And he asked them to kind of put all of their worries and qualms about getting sick aside and to assist the sick and the poor of Philadelphia. So this means going out into the city and finding people who are sick, uh, treating them. If people have perished, uh, getting them out of their houses, burying them, taking what they think are infected articles of clothing. So African-Americans are tasked with burying some of these things so that uh, the city won't have some of these uh, leftover items to spread the disease. So Benjamin Rush really prevails upon African-Americans to put their lives at risk and to help save the city of Philadelphia at this moment of crisis. Wow. And and Alan basically agrees to help corral that effort. Yes. Both Alan and Rush are guided by a religious sensibility, which says this is a special moment, perhaps offered by a just God, which will allow African Americans to prove their worth to Mm. Philadelphians as equal citizens. Because one of the other things that's going on at this time is that Pennsylvania is— still in the early stages of an emancipation process. So both Richard Allen and Absalom Jones, who are in the abolition movement, agree that this might be a very special and providential moment where African Americans in saving the city can prove their fitness for freedom and thus prove the worth of emancipation itself. So for Richard Allen, it's kind of like killing two birds with one stone, or in this case... Three birds. Allen believes the rescue effort will, number one, ethically be the right thing to do. Number two, bolster their case for emancipation across the United States. And number three, help him gain support for building his new church. And so with Allen's leadership, the African-American community lends a hand and gets to work. And at first, things seem to be going well. There was a sense of gratitude for their help. When they find out that African-Americans are going to serve as nurses and pallbearers and uh, aid workers, they call them to their private homes. They let African-Americans like Allen and Jones into their house. They let them touch their bodies. Richard Allen and Absalom Jones are trained in the art of bleeding, which Benjamin Rush is a big proponent of. They said that they bled 800 people. And I want you to conjure this image of African-Americans holding on to a blade and touching it to white people's skin, not only at this moment of crisis for Philadelphia, but when you've got these big debates over slavery and freedom in the Atlantic world, the revolution in Saint-Domingue is uh, going on at this time, and there are reports spreading throughout Philadelphia society. So when whites let African-Americans like Allen and Jones into their home and they let them aid their families and physically touch them, I think it's a real genuine feeling of gratitude that they offer to black aid workers. And so I don't underrate it at all. But things start to change when a publisher named Matthew Carey enters the picture. And when Carey wrote something, people definitely read it. He was enormously influential in the publishing world at the time. 
But when the yellow fever strikes, he joins a lot of other uh, white people of means in leaving the city. He heads out of infected Philadelphia. And when he returns, several months later, he hears stories from a few people about African-Americans who took advantage of the yellow fever to exploit white homes, white kindness. Allen and Jones argue that these are libelous stories, they're false, they're sensationalized. But Matthew Carey sees an opportunity to not only tell a tale about uh, Yellow Fever Philadelphia that will sell some pamphlets and make some money, but to weigh in on this debate over slavery and freedom. And so when he publishes Mm -hmm. his History of the Yellow Fever, Uh, near the end of 1793, he celebrates a few black leaders like Allen and Jones for doing some heroic deeds, but he castigates most African Americans for engaging in what he refers to as pilfering and plundering of white homes, charging too much for nursing services, stealing outright from white homes. The great demand for nurses afforded an opportunity for imposition, which was eagerly seized by some of the vilest of the blacks. They extorted two, three, four, and even five dollars a night for attendance, which would have been well paid by a single dollar. Some of them were even detected in plundering the houses of the sick. But it is wrong to cast a censure on the whole for this sort of conduct, as many have done. The services of Jones, Allen, and Gray, and others of their color have been very great and demand public gratitude. Allen and the black community are outraged. They think this is a falsehood. It's not based in truth. And so Carrie's pamphlet motivates Allen and Jones to write their own pamphlet, their own history of the yellow fever, in which they, as they claim in that pamphlet, seek to set the historical record straight. And what's amazing about the pamphlet is that, first and foremost, Richard Allen and Absalom Jones directly take on Matthew Carey and this problem of black stereotyping. They say, we've read this pamphlet. The pamphlet has already gone through several editions. It's selling like hotcakes. It's a blockbuster in Philadelphia. And it's telling falsehoods about the black community. So we want to correct the historical record and set people straight. The second thing that Allen and Jones do in that pamphlet is tell a tale of black heroism. So African-Americans were approached during the yellow fever epidemic, they say. White leaders like Benjamin Rush wanted them to help out during this time of need. And African-Americans put aside all of their personal reservations and risked their health to save the city. And in doing so, they interacted with a wide variety of white people who were desperately in need. And so what they end up doing is talking about the way that Brotherly love fell apart in Philadelphia during the yellow fever epidemic. Family member turned against family member, neighbor turned against neighbor, and many people who could, like Matthew Carey, left the city, and African Americans who by and large couldn't, and eventually, even if they could, there was a quarantine that kept people in Philadelphia. Uh, So African Americans in Allen and Jones's rendering are the people 
who are left in the city and as a community, the only group that combines their efforts to help save white as well as black Philadelphians. And the thanks they get is this horrible pamphlet from Matthew Carey blaming them for exploiting the yellow fever to get personal wealth, to steal things. So they're really upset. And in this pamphlet, they attempt to turn that anger into something uh, that will redeem African-Americans in the public eye. We feel ourselves sensibly aggrieved by the censorious epithets of many who did not render the least assistance in the time of necessity, yet are liberal of their censure of us. For the prices paid for our services when no one knew how to make a proposal to anyone they wanted to assist them? At first, we made no charge, but left it to those we served in removing their dead to give what they thought fit. We set no price until the reward was fixed by those we had served. What Richard Allen does at the end of that pamphlet is he attaches a couple of addresses to the people at large, not just to Philadelphia. He addresses the nation uh, in a series of missives, including uh, a really important anti-slavery section, which is kind of a pamphlet in its own right. It's an entitled, An Address to Those Who Keep Slaves and Approve the Practice. And he says, what we see in Yellow Fever Philadelphia, a bald example of racism and racial stereotyping flows from slavery. And so this is a lesson to Americans that to confront the problems of the yellow fever, we have to confront slavery and racial injustice. So Richard Allen really uses the yellow fever pamphlet as an opportunity to strike a blow for the abolitionist movement as well. But Richard Allen wasn't just thinking about the present for African-Americans at the time. No, he knew that with this pamphlet, he had a chance to cement something in history. So Allen goes with Absalom Jones down to the federal office. And they get copyright number 55 for the District of Pennsylvania. The pamphlet that Richard Allen publishes is the first copyrighted pamphlet in African-American literature. So in a sense, what Richard Allen and Absalom Jones are doing is copywriting black public protest. This is an important moment for black protest because it puts before national political leaders uh, black anger and black solutions. Allen and Jones say in no uncertain purposes, if you love your country, if you love freedom, then clear your hands of slaves, get rid of bondage, and make sure that America lives up to all its professed ideas of liberty and justice for all. Rich says Allen's demand for liberty and justice for all is by no means the only time a push for civil rights has coincided with a natural disaster. We might think of the yellow fever epidemic in 1793 as the first of several Katrina moments in American history, uh, referring to Hurricane Katrina in 2005 in New Orleans, where uh, a natural disaster becomes the staging grounds for a grand morality play about an awareness moment yes, of an sorts. awareness moment of sorts, where African Americans in the world debate the deeper meaning of civil rights and civil wrongs. And mm. it's really striking when you go back and look at the yellow fever, the way that Allen and Jones talk about this natural disaster is leading to a kind of civic disaster where African Americans are blamed, abused, stereotyped. It sounds so much like what happens during Katrina. And just like during Katrina, which is now a marker 
of black activism, right? Similarly, the yellow fever is one of those moments where African-Americans say to themselves and to the nation, it's time to wake up. So, you know, it's a really powerful event for all of these reasons because it isn't just what you think it is, a natural disaster where uh, people are challenged to do better. It's a real challenging moment for democracy itself. And Richard Allen and Absalom Jones hope that the gift that they give to white society will be one that changes them forever. And, of course, sadly, it's not. Now, you use the great phrase um, that, in a sense, Allen and Jones were copywriting black protest. Um, So thinking that way, not just about the moment that Allen was in, but thinking down the road towards the future— are there ways in which Allen's activism and actually his generosity and the generosity of the black community in Philadelphia, do they have an active influence on how future generations of black activists and leaders are conducting themselves? Well, without a doubt. The Yellow Fever pamphlet is this model of black protest for subsequent generations of civil rights leaders, African-American reformers and others. So you can go – to Frederick Douglass, who is in the next generation of black leaders, to find someone who reveres Richard Allen and Absalom Jones, particularly Richard Allen during Reconstruction. Frederick Douglass writes a note. He says that what we really need now in the late 19th century is a man like Richard Allen, someone who claimed equal citizenship in the early republic and would tell us what to do during the travails of Reconstruction. W.E.B. Du Bois is another civil rights leader in the early 20th century who extols the virtues of Richard Allen's activism. And so when he publishes his pamphlet, he's not only thinking about impacting people in his own time and in his own community, he's thinking about impacting people through time and through space. And we have evidence that African Americans are circulating Allen's pamphlet in the early republic. And then when he dies, other editions will be published. And so we know that even Richard Allen himself is interested in this when he is near the end of his life in the 1830s. He passes away in 1831. One of his last acts is to dictate an autobiography to one of his sons. And he instructs him Mm. to not only publish that autobiography about the building of his black church and all of his gospel labors. He says, reprint that yellow fever pamphlet so that Mm. the new generation of white and black abolitionists can read about all that we had done in the 1790s to a protest for freedom. So in that way, I would argue Richard Allen's Yellow Fever pamphlet is the gift that keeps on giving to white abolitionists, black reformers, and American citizens. Rich Newman is a history professor at Rochester Institute of Technology. He's also the author of Freedom's Prophet, Bishop Richard Allen, The AME Church, and The Black Founding Fathers. So, Joanne, Nathan... What'd yeah. you get me for Hanukkah? Uh-oh. Nothing. <laughs> Dang. <laughs> I'm, I'm a bad gift giver, Brian. That's okay. 
You give the gift of gab, Joanne. Oh, thank you. What a nice thing for you to say. Well, I'm going to I'm going to turn that back around. Um, and I'm going to ask you, Brian and Nathan, you know, we just heard these two amazing stories. But one of the things that sort of struck me as we were listening, you know, we're talking about gift giving, which isn't necessarily the same thing as charity. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm wondering what you think about working your way through different kinds of gifts and what they mean. It's a terrific question. And, uh, you know, just off the top of my head, my sense is that gift giving is at least supposed to be more spontaneous, more emotional, uh, less concerned with uh, kind of the long-term consequences, unless somebody returns your gift to the store. That's always embarrassing. (laughs) And uh, I I would say in general, kind of a a part of a personal relationship. Uh, I understand that people give gifts as part of business and office relations and all of that, but I, I think of gift giving as very personal. I think of charity as uh, maybe not in the 19th century, Joanne, but but in the 20th century is involving organizations and in a way trying to achieve something through a financial contribution. Hmm. I don't know. What do you think, Nathan? I mean, I, I think there definitely is um, a way to, for thinking about relationships and how you have, on the one hand, relationships between populations. So if you think about, you know, the Choctaw and the Irish, those are groups. And obviously they, there's going to be an interesting way to think through what kinds of advantages or disadvantages come out of that kind of gift. But, you know, even on a more intimate level, I think between individuals and within families or, you know, within small communities, this kind of giving has very rich and layered meaning. I mean, you know, even when we think about something like philanthropy, I mean, there's a way in which, you know, people who have a, a concentration of wealth are looking to effectively ingratiate themselves with, you know, certain populations, right? So th- there's a there's a history, for example, of, you know, Andrew Carnegie or Madam C.J. Walker as, you know, business people who find ways of building institutions, be they schools or libraries, as a way of demonstrating that they are, in fact, in- entitled to their wealth because they do good things with it. Um, even more small-scale business people, like some folks that I studied in my first book on Miami, these are property managers and landlords. They were profound engines of institution building, often through gifts, and, and gifts as you know central as building a school or a playground, but also things as intimate as providing a Christmas dinner for tenants. And you know the the underside of this in, in, in the in the larger social network of this moment in the context of, say, you know, rental property is that, say, if you give someone a Christmas dinner, they're going to be less inclined to report you to the local housing bureau if you're slow in getting repairs done, right? Mm. Um, and so there's, there's, a, there's a kind of way that the, the day-to-day social relationships that in some ways benefit the already well-off can be lubricated mm. by, these, by these gifts. And it's not to be completely cynical about it, but it is to recognize that that is one aspect of the gift relationship. Well, Nathan, this will make you even more cynical because <laughs> I, I just read a terrific proposal for a book on income inequality, and mm. our fellow historian, Kim Phillips Fine, is going to talk about the philosophy that undergirds Carnegie. 
which is if you don't have income inequality, then you can't have these wonderful things like libraries. Uh, That it's even, it's, it will make you more cynical than what you just <laughs> said because it's embedded in the very philosophy of giving that unless you have this income inequality, uh, you don't get all these benefits and gifts and contributions and charitable contributions. You can you can take that back in time too. So, sorry, Nathan, I'm going to jump on the Please, cynical bandwagon here. <laughs> Boy, I hope you've already celebrated Christmas, Nathan. That's I know. All so, I can say. Somehow, when, there, when there's a powdered wig involved, it feels less cynical for some reason. <laughs> we're going to be we're going to be slightly post powdered wig though, like in okay. the in the really late and early 19th centuries. You know, that's okay. a period when the Enlightenment, among other things, sort of gave you this sense that you could do things to better society. And you mm-hmm. begin to get organized philanthropy efforts at that time. So on the one uh-huh. hand, the non-cynical version of that is, oh, how nice, people are trying to better society. Of course, the cynical part of that is, okay, well, now that we're extending money and gifts, we get to say something about how the people we're giving them to behave Right. Right. We're right, we're sort right. of inserting ourselves into their private lives in some ways. So now we can quote unquote refine these other kinds of people so that they are more like us. So 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 thinking about the 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 way we use gifts as a kind of social improvement, would would we consider that to be as important to what became American culture as say the federal government or you know the founding documents? I mean, is is gifting really critical to the American way of life? Well, I, I mean, I'll jump on that because I would be willing to argue that Americans uh, on a broad spectrum are among those people kind of least enamored with government. Mm. And so I do think in the United States over the course of American history, at least people have made the argument that we don't need government because we have all these voluntary organizations. We have all these charitable organizations uh, that not only fill the gap, but do it a lot more effectively. And by the way, that goes back (laughs) to this very personalized relationship of gift giving that we started with. That's the family. Uh, Mm -hmm. Again Mm -hmm. and again, at, at least in the United States, the rationale for not having the government do things is, well, the family should take care of that. Right, or the community, right. right? Or the community, exactly. Well, well, that's, I think, you know, a, a good way to think about the holiday feeling around gift giving, right, is that it's not just about the kinds of, you know, uses to which you can put products and objects and goods and services to advance your position, but that there is a kind of cohesion that we experience as family units and communities that come from the giving of one's self or one's time or even of a thoughtful gift um, to someone else. I mean, is, is there a way to balance or at least to minimize the, the possible harmful aspects of gift giving and really emphasize what becomes the more cohesive side of it? First of all, you know, one doesn't have to accept a gift. Uh, mm. And in fact, one doesn't always accept gifts. And secondly, we haven't talked about receiving gifts Mm. very much, but receiving gifts can be a rather uncomfortable thing, Uh, Mm. precisely for the reasons you're talking about, Nathan, precisely because, you know, one asks, well, what do I owe in return? 
Right. Right. And so I don't have a historical answer for you. I, I do think it behooves all of us to think about the obligations entailed in both giving and receiving gifts. The obligations and the fact that in some way or another, it's easy to get power entangled in there, depending on the nature of the giving and, and receiving. Right, right, right. On the other hand, and more in spirit with the season, I hope, there's a great joy in gift giving and I hope, in the case of the gifts I've given, expecting nothing in return. Well, I think, I think you've put your, your, your thumb on the magic word for this, <laughs> Brian, which is expectation. Yes. Right? I mean, if, if the expectation that, say, a landlord in the Jim Crow South has about giving a Christmas dinner is that then his tenant won't report him to a local housing agency, <laughs> right. then we should be far less romantic about that than, right. say, the gift that is given without expectation. And, and I wonder if, if there's a way of understanding American history as a series of gifts that are given with greater or lesser expectations. And that sometimes it, it, the way to maybe parse what the difference is between a philanthropist and, you know, an uncle who's giving a, a gift to a, to a child is to say, well, maybe, you know, there are those folks, regardless of how much wealth one has or even the relationship between two folks, maybe what makes the difference between a gift that should be taken and one that shouldn't is the expectation that's attached to it. And, and is there a way for to highlight the, the positive aspect of gift giving by focusing on that expectation part of it? I think there is a way, although it's not used that often, that's anonymity. Some mm-hmm. very mm-hmm. huge gifts and some small, very meaningful gifts have been given anonymously. So, so this emphasis on, on expectation actually reminds me of, a, of an experience I had very briefly as a parent of public school kids in New York City. And we had... The benefit of, of going to a very resource-rich um, public school in Lower Manhattan that had a very wealthy parent-teacher association in, in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, many times over, um, was the budget. And, and the budget was largely generated through a combination of people who worked in the philanthropic sector, who had kids who went to the school. The, the fund was managed by a disbarred stockbroker who had it in all kinds <laughs> of, you know, important, you know, funds. And, um, you know, it was basically understood that the parents should be close to or above 90% giving, you know, as a body. And the way they were going to encourage this kind of contribution on the part of the families in this part of the New York City was to put a large sign or plaque on the wall of the foyer as the kids walk into the school that featured all of the names of the families who had given. And this is what worked (laughs) in the philanthropic sector. And it certainly would work in how parents would be encouraged to then give out of a sense of recognition. And their Mm -hmm. kids would feel proud seeing their family names on the wall as well. Well, let me just tell you, this was (laughs) was not a popular um, initiative at all. And there was a real pushback from parents who certainly did not have the resources to, you know, both live in New York City, oftentimes with multiple children, and give regular or hefty donations. There were a number of people who said, we give in ways that cannot be measured in dollars, but we give in time and in resources and skills. And does our name go up on the wall as well, right? I mean, there there was a whole host of- Or did we even ask that our name go up on the wall? Right. No, exactly right. So, so, so many of the, the kind of questions of 
recognition and public investment and the idea that money is the only contribution and thinking about this, you know, thing that's already come out of the show of much more informal contributions that actually, again, provide a sense of connection and, you know, real community, that there's, there's almost a disconnect between mm-hmm. those two different cultures. And I, and I wonder about, about the extent to which we have enough time or space or energy in this particular moment of American history to honor that kind of giving, that kind of gift, really. 